Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. And we've been at this podcast for a few years, and I have had a bunch of amazing conversations and have learned a lot from the guests who have been on. After a couple years of doing this, we have decided to try something a little new. While we'll still be talking to guests, we're going to try to unearth some of the internal conversations we have at Interplay and share them with the public. I get a lot of my best news and insights from the team at Interplay. They're super sharp. They're all having lots of conversations themselves, synthesizing it, and sharing it internally. And so we've decided to create a new format that we call the partner meeting. Today's going to be the first partner meeting episode. And in this segment, I'm going to have quick one-on-one chats with four of the different partners at Interplay. Now, we have a bigger team, but these are the four who are joining in to share topics that they cover. We have Mike Rogers, partner over on the venture capital side, who will come in and chat about the VC and startup marketplaces. Chris Zhang, on our family office, is going to cover global and macro trends, which makes a ton of sense given he, for 10 years, was a trader at Morgan Stanley, trading derivatives, fixed income, and other things I probably can't even spell. We got Brett Palatiello, partner over on our blockchain side of the house, and he's going to fill us in the latest and greatest happening in blockchain, crypto, and Web3. And Fong Ireland, who is living on the front lines of operations as the partner over on the incubator side of Interplay, is going to share a business tip of the week. So without any more delay, welcome to the partner meeting. Let's jump in. First up, we have Mike Rogers diving in to VC and startup market trends. All right, Mike, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, well, the venture market's been interesting, to say the least, uh, this September. So I think a lot of VCs after the summer break thought that coming back in September, deals would start to pick up uh, maybe quite ferociously. And the truth of the matter is we really haven't seen that yet. We are starting to see at the Series A, at least, the market unstick a little bit. Uh, people poking their heads back out to take temperature, uh, figure out what interest is on the investor side, what pricing looks like, etc. But uh, we really haven't seen uh, the deal pickup that we thought we would. And I think what that really bodes to is just a mismatch uh, in the market between what the expectations are for founders and what the expectations are for VCs in terms of prices around. And we just haven't seen equilibrium yet. And because of that, I think, again, VCs have an expectation that things are going to price much lower given public market comps, investor sentiment, overall macroeconomic uh, feelings and headwinds. And investors still think their company is worth what it might have been worth six or 12 months ago. I think that might not be, that might not be completely true. I know they, they, they don't think it's worth exactly what it was at the peak of the market, but they don't think it's worth what people are trying to price it at today. And you know, we'll see. I think a lot of people are saying, oh, well, there's so much dry powder out there in the market. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of dry powder out there. But at the end of the day, VCs don't have to deploy capital every day, every month, every week. Entrepreneurs will need to raise money at some point. Uh, and we'll see how, how, how that shakes out over what I think will really be the next three to six months. You know, it's interesting is if, you know, I talk to a lot of my buddies in private equity and they say, look, there's a bid-ask spread issue right now. Com- deals are not getting done. Yeah. But they live in a world where companies are generally cash flow positive. They can just sell in two years, three years. They can wait this out. Venture is not the same. You know, we intentionally run companies that could be profitable at a loss to optimize for growth. 
Uh, and so there's a lot of companies out there that aren't able to retool for profitability. And there's only so long they can hold their breath before they have to come up for air and raise money. So, you know, it's interesting. I thought we were actually going to be seeing more transaction volume, more deal flow popping up already, just because no one knew this was coming. It was impossible to budget properly. Um, now that said, deals are getting done. We've made some investments recently, but it's not back to the normal cadence that we saw, you know, pre-dip. Yeah. Agreed. And I think if you look at what's going on in the public markets as well right now, the Nasdaq hit another low again. This just this week, you know, we're we're talking Friday, September 30th. And people are spooked. I mean, you've got sentiment ratching up in uh Overseas in Europe right now, uh, I think that's definitely scaring some investors. Uh, obviously, inflation is not quelled at all. So, on our side, I think people want to see that turning the corner before they start to write big checks. Now, again, at the seed, maybe even the Series A level, people are really looking three, four, five, six, seven, maybe ten years out. So, can you still make bets at that stage? Absolutely. B, C, D, not sure. Right. How do you know how to price a company fairly? How do you know what the thing might, might look like? What does an exit look like? When? All these things that you try to pinpoint as an investor become really hard to do uh, in a market like this. Yeah. I mean, the valuations we're seeing and the deals we're doing on the early stage, they're down from where they were last year. But they're kind of more like at 19 levels. The yeah. carnage we're seeing at the growth stage where there's a shorter time horizon to exit early stage, we, you know, we're buying now for a far off market exit. Yeah, exactly. Right. The carnage there is a lot different, a lot heavier. Um, and it's a tougher time to be a founder of a more mature company. Yeah. And the, and the growth stage math is, is really pretty simple. If you think about it, it's if a, if a company raised a large growth round last year, and let's say it was a SaaS business, and maybe they priced it at 30 or 40 times revenue. Those market comps are now 10 or 15 times revenue, right? For a, for a high growth business. So for that company, they would have had to triple revenue between that raise and this raise, even to get back to the same valuation on a relevant multiple. And that's just not happening, especially as the economy slows down, as people are cutting headcount, as sales growth is slowed down. And we're seeing it across pipelines for SaaS companies uh, and, and for consumer businesses too. So while I think the economic shock hasn't been quite as strong yet, and you saw that in the consumer spending data this week, people are still spending a lot of money. Um, companies are bracing for impact, and that is slowing sales down sort of by, uh, by the natural effect. Mike, this is great. Thanks for giving us some insight here. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Up next, we have Chris Zhang covering the broader market dynamic. Chris, my dude. What? Mark, is, how are you? Good, man. What's happening in the market? Give us the update. Uh, it's one of those weeks where every day we're bombarded with headlines. And unfortunately, uh, most of them are not looking great. So long story short, uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, in, the, in the U.S., we had a few data came out. Uh, of course, we've got the perpetual uh, inflation data that, that, that this week was uh, the personal consumption expenditure data, which is really the Fed's preferred way of looking at inflation that came out stronger than, than expected. We've all got the job data, which is and this week is uh, the initial job, jobless claims that came out at the lowest level since March 2022. Both data basically point, give um, the Fed more reasons to hike uh, at a faster than expected speed. 
which of course uh, is bad for risky assets. So you've seen this capitulation of market since the Fed meeting two weeks ago at the 75 basis, basis point hike um, of continued losses uh, in equity market and, 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 and the rest of the risky assets as well. And uh, in addition to the U.S., of course, uh, the biggest news of the week, um, arguably, was uh, uh, in England, uh, where after the surprise uh, tax cuts, which are obviously very controversial and um, have, driven, have driven the market um, to the extreme uh, in risk sentiments, um, now Bank of England came out with a surprise intervention, which is a bomb buying program similar to the QE program here in the States. Um where uh, the Bank of England is, has agreed to buy up to five billion sterling a day worth of long dated gilts, or uh, also known as the Treasury, effectively the the, the Treasury bonds in the, in 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 the UK um, uh, for two weeks straight. So this has was intended to stabilize the market. Has sent signals that um, to the rest of the uh, central banks in the world that uh, maybe it's time to begin some sort of easing which has helped risk sentiment initially for about a day. We saw S&P rally back about 2% from the lows. Um, treasury rates have stabilized. Um, gilts, again, tre the, the treasury in, in the UK, sold off uh, 150 basis points almost leading up to it. And then all of a sudden uh, had a single day, single biggest rally um, of many years, a 50 basis point. Um, after all that, all that, you know, only to give back basically all the gains uh, in the market on Thursday, where investors are taking a hard look at the intervention and, and basically have decided that um, maybe the scale is not big enough and uh, um, the timing is not right. And, uh, you know, so what we've seen, what we're seeing is, is a continued downward trend in sentiment. So today we're basically making... Um, yesterday and today making new lows in the market again. And I know it's a long-winded answer to your question, but let me, there's one more thing, of course, and we, can, we cannot um, talk about uh, what's happened in the world without mentioning at least Russia, where um, the big news this week is the uh, official votes on the annex annexations of a few Ukraine territories. Um, that has gone through officially as of today. Uh, again, that for risk sentiments. This could lead to a, a, a dragged on uh, war scenario where where um, Europe will definitely suffer in the winter with the supply chain disruption, energy energy crisis, and of course uh, the rest of the world will will feel that as well. So the overall headline is: Hey, we've been in a tailspin for a while, and it's not over. Um, unfortunately, yes. The as an investor, you know, um, you, 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 of course, you don't like uncertainties and uh, you, you, you like there are more certainties in the world but at the moment um, we're just seeing uncertainties in sort of all fronts um, geopolitical economic domestic international you name it and it's it's a tough tough spot to be and it's hard to see hard to see the bright side uh, at the moment you are the most pessimistic person in our group uh, probably with good reason you're staring you're staring at this data whereas all the private market folks are staring at these rosy stories of companies you know building the future. What's, uh, right. what's the opportunity set here? Is there any silver lining in kind of all of this negativity yeah. that people should be thinking about? 
Great question. Frankly, uh, you know, as an investor, you know, you want to be the long way type of investor. You want to bet on the the rosy future, if you will, um, and and me included. So it, I'm, we're always on a hunt for 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 an upturn in the market. Um, look, it's all about expectations versus, versus reality. And market, remember, market is always forward looking. Uh, six months, nine months, uh, it's, it's sort of uh, arguable there. So. It's it's a matter of when you think markets overpriced the risk and the uncertainties around the globe. If at one point we're starting to see that um, the market market right now, is, for instance, pricing in about four point six percent top rates from the Fed in the U.S. If at one point we're starting to see market participants are you know in the futures market are starting to price in five percent, six percent interest rates, and our view is that potentially we won't need to get there to bring down inflation. And that's a scenario where, you know, markets overpriced the risks, overpriced the downside. And that's potentially when we can start to think about adding to our long positions and betting on a better future in risky assets. And of course, whenever, you know, uh, markets are too pessimistic about the world, uh, I think it's always good to come in and think more rationally. Well, you've brought down my mood for the entire day, uh, but thanks for being here. Um, so everyone knows... Uh, Chris is a SEC-registered RAA, so nothing he said should be considered financial or investment advice. Blah, blah, blah. That's my disclaimer. You're probably going to hear it way too often. All right, buddy. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Now, Brett's going to come in and cover blockchain. All right, Brett. What's happening in the world of blockchain? Yeah. Uh so we're one thing I wanted to bring up, and I've noticed over the past couple of weeks, uh, we're starting to see more high-profile uh, forays into Web3. Uh, Starbucks recently announced that they're going to integrate NFTs into their rewards program uh, on Polygon. Uh, so that's that's very interesting because obviously the rewards program is is pretty massive. Um, we also saw Warner Music Group, um, a big record company. Uh, they're going to be partnering with OpenSea to allow, you know, their artists like Cardi B uh, to more uh, easily access and uh, issue NFTs. Um, uh, there's a few other things. Uh, finally, U.S. Uh, Facebook and Instagram users, everybody will be able to display their NFTs uh, on those different social media platforms. Uh, Google's had a Web3, said they're looking to be uh, layer zero for Web3. So it's it's very interesting to see everybody starting to pile in. And that's a little concerning in the space for some people, uh, considering a lot of this technology is supposed to be disrupting their business models. Um, but it does show that uh, the space is being taken much more seriously. The the values of decentralization and interoperability are, are being taken much more seriously. So it's definitely a, a hat tip to to what we're building here. Well, here's a question, though. I've been talking to people at large companies for the last couple of years about this, and it doesn't seem like they really had their head around how blockchain, how NFTs really fit into their businesses. They knew it was neat. They knew it was a hot topic. They probably knew they'd get promoted if they did something around it. But the ways they were talking about using it it didn't real have have real practical business applications, and I think they knew that. So, are the approaches that you're seeing now thoughtful and reflecting the underlying utility of the technology, or are they kind of like lipstick on a pig? What's happening here? 
Uh, yeah, no, I, I think they're definitely starting to figure out that there's real use cases for this stuff. Um, you know, for example, NFTs for rewards programs can be a much more engaging, interactive way uh, to issue a rewards program. Um, and it's it's all on the blockchain, so it's all interoperable with uh, everybody else's ecosystem, right? They all share the same rails, uh, which is why both Instagram and Facebook, uh, you can display your NFTs. Right. So you're able to port things from from different places. And also it's a shared layer for all of this data to live and move. So they don't need to build out this infrastructure. They can just place it on a public blockchain that's being managed in uh, by a decentralized community of, of validators or nodes. Right. And so I, I would imagine a lot of these companies are starting to work with the consultants in the space. For those who don't know that, there's a number of firms that have popped up that are experts and how to work with NFTs uh, and the blockchain, and they're advising large corporations. Are, are you hearing any engagement on that in the background, or do you know how they've kind of picked up the intel on this? Uh, on In terms of consultants? Yeah, um, people who are actually helping them. And we've got friends over at a place like Minotaur and other places that oh, do yeah. real work and try to help people navigate this. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of what we're looking for is people that are, uh, and they call it Web 2.5, is one of the themes where we're going to be investing in, is uh, bringing all this technology to the mainstream, right? There's a lot of it's supposed to liberate artists from big record labels. The problem is, is they don't have the, t the tool sets uh, to be able to use this type of technology or create, you know, NFTs or, or issue them and create generative art and things like that. So uh, a lot of that's going to require a traditional Web 2 UI UX, uh, which is much nicer than Web 3 UI UXs. Um, but it's also going to be a little bit more white glove. We're, we're going to start seeing probably the larger labels, at least. Uh, you know, we're going to have people like Minotaur creating NFT projects for these larger artists. Um, so a lot of the next transition from where we are to the next day, 100 million users um, I think is going to be within uh, or in front of a traditional Web2 interface, abstracting away all of this technology from, from users and creators. And instead, you just have one more seamless experience and you're able to do things that you couldn't do before or you're able to do things uh, in a much more efficient way. I totally agree on that front. I think when people from a consumer standpoint don't know the taglines or the web three or the blockchain or NFT, when that's not actually part of the user experience, they're just doing something that they want to do in a mobile app or on a web. I think uh, that's what I think we're going to get mainstream adoption. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's exactly what I think it's going to look like. We're just going to be using this technology. You're not going to know which chain you're on. You're not going to worry about moving assets to and from different, uh, different applications or different, uh, different, different chains. So ultimately, again, you're just going to be able to do something cooler that you couldn't do before or more engaging, right? You have NFTs that evolve or they allow you to do certain things or access uh, certain people. So um, I think that's the ultimate end state. Um, and then at a, a very base layer, um, we're going to see, you know, much, much more decentralized things that are more trying to be universally accessible so people can take their keys and their data from them and go, they call it self-sovereign. Um, and essentially, it's a check on, on power of big corporations who are, you know, abusing data or abusing users. So I think it's a great system overall. Brett, appreciate you, man. Thanks for the update. Thank you. And last but not least, we've got Fong here covering the business tip of the week. Fong, all right. 
What do you have for us this week? Hi, everyone. So um, today I wanted to talk about talent and team building. Um, in the Interplay Incubator, a big part of what we do is we work with companies to ensure that they have the right people in place and the right team structure so that they can really succeed and scale. Now, to create a high-performing team, it's absolutely essential that you pull together people with different backgrounds, different skill sets, and different working styles. So how do you know that you have the right people in place? How do you know if you're missing a key t- team member? An exercise that we like to do in the incubator um, and something that we internally call the Superman analysis. And we call it that because no one can do it all by themselves, right? No one's a Superman. So it's really simple, but it's a great tool to help you uncover the holes in your team. So for those of you watching on YouTube, I'm going to show you an example of what it looks like. And then um, for people just listening, I'll just just follow along. I'm just going to explain it. So here we've come up with, um, I'm doing the Superman analysis for an econ company. So on the left-hand column, we list out all the skills that you would need for across the entire company for that company to really run efficiently and meet their business objectives. So specifically for this this company, it's things like supply chain management, assortment building, 3PL management, um, tech builds, emails, all the marketing activities. Um, You know, this is probably not exhaustive, but and, and this will differ between companies and industries. Then on the next few columns, we list out each person on the team. So in this particular case, we have two co-founders and three employees. Now for each team member, we then go down and put an X next to the skills that they have um, on each line. So you'll see co-founder one is really doing a lot of supply chain management, 3PL management, um, Co-founder two is doing a lot of the kind of Shopify and website management and then on and on for the three other employees. Now, once you're done with that, it'll become really clear where the holes in your team are. So, for example, in this particular case, customer service seems to be something that co-founder one is doing, um, but uh, but he or she is not really, that's not a strength of theirs. That's why I have this, like this. I bold the areas where um, it's a strength for that person. And then I put in a different color where they're doing the activity, but they're, it's not a, a strength for them. So it seems like customer service is, a, is an opportunity here. Co-founder one is doing it. She has a lot of, uh, on her plate um, and it's a really important activity for an econ company. Uh, partnerships and events seems like another opportunity, content creation and community building on and on. So as you can see, it's a really illuminating um, analysis. It tells you visually where the holes on your team are. And if one person is doing too much or too little for that matter, or if someone's working on too many activities that are not a key strength for them. So that's the Superman analysis. This is a great tool. Uh, One of the things that's so powerful about it is what you're doing here. I have found that founders will look at this and be like, oh, we basically have an act, two activities with this person, two activities with that person, two activities with this person. And we put it all together, it's actually a full-time job description. And it's not easy to see that you can create jobs out of kind of the little overage that a lot of different people are facing. So this is a really useful tool for it. One other thing I think is really fun with it too, for folks listening, is 
once you figure out where you currently are, you can make another copy of this document and you can plot out where you want to be. And you can say, okay, we're going to move these three over to this person and we're going to, you know, we're going to realign some work internally. We're going to add a couple people to the team. Here's what they're going to be doing. It's so simple. Having the team doing the right types of work is so important. Uh, and almost shamefully, there's, we've never experienced another tool to do this. So we kind of came up with this concoction. Um, one of the last things I want to talk about, which I think is fun on this particular topic, Fong, when you look at these roles and how things are allocated, I love thinking about how it's going to evolve as the organization scales. Now, a lot of people are doing the Superman analysis in the early days. They're doing it in their team of one to 10. But if you're doing it right, when someone has a 20-person team or a 30-person team, there's a trend here, right? The founders should increasingly move tasks off their plate. So I, I love that this starts to give insight into what people should be thinking about getting out of their workflow, what they should stop doing and start delegating, which is a constant challenge for folks. And I think being intentional about it is a little easier when you see it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, as founders and co-founders, it's really uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, co-founders really have too much on their plates, right? They're doing everything from high level to kind of some more of the you know, day-to-day, I wouldn't want to call it menial tasks, but those are the things that you can start prioritizing to get off of the founder's plate so they can focus on the the big activities that are really driving the business. But you can't do it on day one, obviously. It's uh, kind of, you know, over time. This is awesome. Thank you for sharing this, Fong. Thank you. All right. That was our first go at the partner meeting. I thought that was pretty awesome. I don't know if you liked it as much as I did, but um, I was interested in it. Hopefully it was engaging for you guys. Uh, We're trying to come up with fun names for each of the segments for the four partners. If you have ideas, please drop them on Twitter or in the chat uh, commentary area. Um, And that's our first go at the partner meeting format. So look, you know the drill. If you want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, you can subscribe on YouTube or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.